Hey everyone, my name is Nick. And my name's Kat. Thanks for listening to our podcast, Made for You and Me, an educational <laughs> educational and entertaining podcast on the history, geology, wildlife, and other fun facts within America's best idea, the national parks. I like that we, or that you say that new every time. We don't just like have our recorded same introduction. It's genuine every time. Yeah. Yeah. Fresh. And I never, ever get it all right. And I haven't memorized it yet. You know, you don't need to memorize it. Your brain is constantly taking in and putting out information. And if you have the opportunity to type something down, like we do with our notes in this podcast, don't worry about memorizing it. Just just write it down and read it. Thanks. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll affirm you in that. No worries. Affirmation. Oh, great. Cool. It is Sunday, December 6, 2020. And what a weekend this has been. It hasn't been that exciting for me, but it sounds like you've gotten a lot of work done. Yeah, actually, while I was saying what a weekend this has been, I was actually thinking, like, it actually really hasn't been that, like, phenomenal of a weekend. Just productive. And sometimes you look back on your productive weekend and you say, cool, you know, that was great. And then, but you also think, like, I wanted to, like, spend more time on the beach or doing something else. But... It's important to be a grown-up and do grown-up things. I had to finish up my final for my class, which was fine, but also staring at a computer screen once yeah. again. So I, I'm, ex- I'm actually excited to paint the trim all over the house white again Woo! because yeah, which is one of those like productive but not exciting things. Mm-hmm. But at least it's not looking at a screen. Yeah, yeah. So um, good outlook, cat. <laughs> That's great. Um, And I'm seeing that, uh, so since I missed the whole room going from white to red a few weeks ago, um, I'm I'm taking a moment to acknowledge the changes in the room. Uh I see the red has been touched up at the very top of the wall close to the ceiling. So that's done because, you know, as you get closer, you can't paint as freely. So that's done and it's solid all the way around. Love it. (laughs) New curtains in here. Love it. Um, and we also have some frosted windows for Christmas decorations. <laughs> yes. Love it. Yes. Very cool. And that's all. Um, oh, some wrapped gifts already in the shelf ready mm-hmm. to be given away. Yeah. Oh, so nice. Also this. So, um, oh, yeah. if anyone listening has ever seen these, there are a bunch of cutting boards mm-hmm. that are in the state that you live in, which some states are probably not as exciting those are, like those Colorado. Those are big right now. State, yeah. state-shaped cutting boards, yeah. So we have two um, in the state of North Carolina. One, my fiancé, when he first moved here from South Carolina, was hanging up, and he hung it up backwards. <laughs> I was mm-hmm. like, okay, you live here now. You guys didn't know which way the state goes. But the other one we use, and so it's kind of falling apart because we use it. Yeah. And so I get this... Um, this in the mail, which is a new cutting board in the shape of a state. And um, it looks a lot like North Carolina, but is in fact Kentucky. I would not have, <laughs> I, I, would, I would not have known the shape Kentucky's in. So I was just like, oh dear, my poor fiance. I'm going to have to like explain this to him again. But then I thought about it, I was like, oh, we're getting married in Kentucky. <laughs> and so I was the dumb one, and his mom actually sent it to very us. So thoughtful. it has like our names and stuff. It's so cute. That's very thoughtful. And I really yeah. like that now we have two states mm. hanging on our wall of cutting yeah. boards. <laughs> yeah. I think it's really cute. Um, and Kentucky has a whole new meaning to you. 
I mean, hopefully it's still, you know, a year and a half off. So we'll, we'll I mean, see. Fingers crossed. just made it absolutely <laughs> I, official. There's no going back. I got to keep him around for another year <laughs> and a half before I lock it down, you I know? I guess so. I guess so. Okay. Um, well, I did want to also make an announcement um, pertaining to <laughs> the book that was discussed in not the last episode because that was pre-recorded, but our previous episode. Was it Hawaii Volcanoes? It was. Um, finished the book. Um, it was not good. So apologize for wasting 10 minutes of everyone's life talking about it. <laughs> Just to turn out that it wasn't that great. Um, but, you know, you live and you learn. And... I just like sped read through the rest of it and called it and I did finish it and it was just like, yeah, you know, they found the murderer and the end. Um, but I did start a new book this week called The Passenger by Lisa Lutz and it um, is looking pretty promising. Nice. Yeah, I'm feeling um, good about it. The Who Wrote Gone Girl was a question on Trivial Pursuit the other day. And I was like, if I had just listened to Nick oh, and no. read this book, I would know. I, we got it right as a gut feeling, okay. but Good. Um, that was, yeah. I'm I was like, oh, there's more to this than just reading. <laughs> there's also Trivial Pursuit answers right. I should be doing. I also have a quick announcement. My father texted me. He said, I'm listening to your Petrified Forest podcast, FYI. Pueblos had roof openings to make it harder to invade. The exterior walls served as a fortress wall. If enemies were threatening, they would pull up the exterior ladders. Doing so nightly gave them added protection from unwanted animals. And I was like, oh, thanks, Dad. Thanks. Another thing you could have taught me. No, I'm just kidding. Thanks, Dad. (laughs) That's great. Um, Thank you, Dad. And like Cat's father, if you guys have any, um, any tidbits to add after you listen to an episode... Uh, feel free to let us know and we'll shout you out. Yeah, we certainly are not the experts here. We're just interested and entertaining. Exactly. We're relaying the information Mm -hmm. and you might know more information than us. Um, So feel free to add. It's all for the cause. More than likely you do know more information than us. Mm, I don't know. I'm feeling like very smart after doing all this. And I'm like, how many people know this? Like how many people know like this crazy thing? Um, But now... I mean, now that we have like 100,000 listeners every episode, 100,000 more people know this information. I want to thank each of you individually, starting with (laughs) Aardvark, Aardvark. (laughs) Um, Kat, who is our sponsor today? Um, I think it should be, let's see, um, Dunkin' Donuts, because I'm running off of them. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for all you've done, Dunkin' Donuts, also known as Dunkin' just now, or now. Oh, really? They're no longer donuts, I don't think. None? I think, like, the whole thing is just Dunkin'. Oh. Yeah. The, they changed, like, the DD? Yeah, it's just Dunkin'. Oh, wow. I don't think they've gotten around to, like, the rebranding of, like, That's every... how often I actually go there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually getting more into Dunkin' and Starbucks lately. Mm. They have, like, a really good... That I'm sure the only reason I love it is because I has way more sugar than I really want to know how much is in it. But they have a really good um, frozen mocha coffee that I'm, like, really feeling lately. Good. I just had to buy um, flavored... What do you call it? The... The creamer, because I've been buying way too much, and I don't need to be spending so much on myself. Yeah, no, good for you. Um, No, but Dunkin' Donuts is not our sponsor today. (laughs) No, not at all. Not officially. Um, 
And for like some insane reason, we don't have a major corporate sponsor. Like, I don't know like what's taking so long because like we're producing premium, premium content that's both educational and entertaining. So like why park related businesses like Patagonia, L.O. Bean, Columbia, REI have not reached out to us like is beyond me. It, well, I agree. Yeah. I agree. So, so um, maybe one day we'll have a sponsor like that. And if any of you listeners can hook us up, um, we would much appreciate it. Um, but for now, our sponsor is uh, ourselves. <laughs> and how much coffee we drink. <laughs> um, and low-key, it it's Dunkin' Donuts. Um, <laughs> cool. Well, let's dive into it, Kat. Where are we going today, Nicholas? Today we're going to Wrangell St. Elias National Park and Preserve. Woo-hoo! It's cold there. It is chilly there. And that's one of my fun facts, too, which isn't fun. It's rather interesting because like the cold is not fun. But um, it's a it's a fact. That, I think cold is more fun than hot. I don't. Okay. Uh, but that's what makes the world go round. We're to all disagree. different in that way. Um, so yeah, I I ne- I never grew up like doing snow sports or like you know really engaging in the coldness. Um, I was definitely much more of like a summer guy. I like right. swam growing up. Always wanted to be outdoors, barefoot in a pool, just whatever. So the cold's just not my cup of tea. But if it is your cup of tea, more power to you. Oh, people swim in the cold. No, I know, and it's like I don't understand. I watched a video on it. You can go ahead. Let's talk <laughs> about history. <laughs> so I received some feedback from an avid listener with some advice about the historic portion of every episode. And I think that was very good advice. Um, So similar to this listener, if you guys have any advice, just like if you have any more information to add to an episode, we are very open to um, some feedback. Yeah. Because we want to make this good for you all. We're not doing, I mean, we kind of are doing this for us, but like we're mostly doing it for you. So we want to make it enjoyable. Instead of like community science, it's like community podcasting. Exactly. <laughs> so this advice was to kind of take a page out of Kat's book and pick some things that are that interest me out of the history and elaborate on them Mm. kind of how cat picks things from wildlife that Mm. are interesting to her um i should cover the overall history but maybe um pull out some stuff that is like is more interesting okay yeah and in addition to that the history of wrangle st elias national park and preserve is like really large there's, there's yeah the whole thing's really large. The whole, yeah similar to the physical size of the park the uh the amount of history to the park is also very very big um so if there's any more information about the history that you want to find out yourself um you go for it this would honestly be like an hour and a half long podcast just on the history yeah. if I were to cover all of it so I'm not going to do that let us get started Have you ever dreamed of unspoiled wilderness with towering mountains and curving river valleys? A place where humans have lived for thousands of years, where wildlife thrives amid rock, ice, and tundra? Stretching across Alaska's southeast corner, Wrangell St. Elias National Park and Preserve offers visitors a truly wild experience. With its incredible natural landscape, diverse wildlife, and rich human history, Wrangell St. Elias really does have something for everyone. Uh, so it's a mountainous park. Uh, incredible, <laughs> beautiful mountains. I mean, a lot more to it, but there it's, are mountains everywhere. There are mountains everywhere. So, like we already said, the park is the largest national park in the United States at 13,175,799 acres. 
It is six times larger than Yellowstone and 25% bigger than Switzerland. <laughs> it's big. In 2018, it had 79,450 visitors, putting it in the bottom 10 most visited American national parks. It was first established in December 1978 as a national monument and then upgraded to a national park on December 2nd, 1980. And the park includes a large portion of St. Elias Mountains, uh, which includes most of the highest peaks in the United States and Canada. Yet, the park is within 10 miles of tidewater. Um, so Mount St. Elias is actually the biggest coastal mountain in the world. I have a quick question. Yeah. Do you have any idea how they know how many people go to this park, considering how big it is and there's only two roads that go into it? Yeah, it's very possible that that number is... Higher. Is higher. Um, but I would also, kind of thinking like in my own mindset, I would want to go to the official entrance of this place out of fear of losing my way and just like being so lost. Well, one of the major ways that people get in is airplane. Yeah. But I don't know if they actually would go. Yeah, no, I don't know. That yeah, yeah. that's true. That could that could be that could be off. Um but for the sake of actual official records, um yeah. it's around 80,000, but it could be more. Um so Wrangell St. Elias Park borders Canada's Cluane, I didn't learn how to pronounce it before we recorded. Uh, K-L-U-A-N-E, K-L-U-A-N-E, National Park and Reserve, to the east, and approaches another American national park to the south, Glacier Bay National Park and Preserve. All right, history. Archaeological evidence indicates that humans entered the Wrangell Mountains in about 1000 A.D. The Atna people, Eyak people, and Tlingit people settled among the Copper River and the Gulf of Alaska at the Yucatan Bay. They lived there for about 700 years undisturbed. Also, copper is like, is we're going to talk about copper um, a number of times. Yay. And I typed out Cooper. <laughs> every my time. My dog's name. Every <laughs> single time. And so whenever I was going back and reviewing my notes, I had to just control find Cooper and replace it with copper because I'm just like <laughs> Cooper mode all the time, forever. Um, but it's copper. So the first explorers were Russians who showed up in 1741 and they set up fur trading and other posts along the Copper River. And one of the Russian trading companies wanted to explore the areas uh, for copper based on reports of natives having tools and other items made of copper. And at the time, copper was very valuable for a few reasons, primarily that it was used for seeding the bottom of ships to protect the wood from rotting. So Russians wanted to explore the area more thoroughly, both to try to find copper and also just get a better idea of the land. But it was not easy and they were not very successful. <laughs> so first, an exploration party in 1797 had just begun setting out to explore the land when they were killed by natives. Oh. Another party a year later was more successful and they were able to reach the Chitina River and they took a census of the local inhabitants. So I don't know what they did to make themselves more successful, but while they were there, they, um, they did a census to see how many natives were in that area. And then another group of explorers in 1799 were attacked and wounded by the Atna people, forcing them to turn back. They tried again in 1803, but they were all killed. Yay, native people. <laughs> <laughs> whenever, whenever I was learning this, I, I was like, 
oh, like, I don't want to, like, praise, like, people killing other people, but also, like, good, like, good for you. <laughs> sure, cool, I'll take it. Um, and then the Tlingit and Eyak people, as previously mentioned, proactively attacked uh, and destroyed a Russian post in the Yucatan area in 1805. It wasn't until 1819 that a new party was sent to explore the Copper River again. This time they reached the upper portion of the river and established a Copper Fort trading post um, and they hung out there for a while. And so they got comfortable being there for about 20 years and then another party started out to explore in 1848 with the hopes of reaching the Yukon River but they were killed again by natives. And that ended Russian exploration in the area. They said, bye. We out. We've had this. <laughs> Which is like, it's funny. I mean, it's long ago. It's history. It's funny. They're like, <laughs> They dang. killed a lot of times. Yeah. They never got it right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Well, <laughs> since you can see Russia from Alaska, it's it really easy to just keep trying, I suppose. I guess so. They did. They tried and they failed. And, you know... That's These things that. happen. <laughs> These things happen. <laughs> so then America acquired Alaska from Russia in 1867, but America didn't really care to explore much of the land um, because gold was found in the Yukon Territory in the 1880s, so most of the attention was spent on that area. But slowly, members of the American military fully explored the territory and reached the Bering Sea in 1885. I was visiting Portland one time and someone was giving me, I don't know why, a history lesson on Alaska. <laughs> and they said that they just gave us, they told me that they just gave us Alaska because they didn't think that there were any pelts left. And so this any is, pelts? Yeah, like beavers or oh, anything. Yeah. Um, and they were like, the hot the hot thing was a beaver pelt. <laughs> so maybe. Inter- interesting. Yeah. We'll take it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I like started to get into like the whole history of like, America acquiring acquiring Alaska from Russia, but then I was like, no, Nick, focus, focus, focus. focus." (laughs) Cool. So let's talk about national park proposals. The first proposal to protect lands in the region of today's Wrangell-St. Elias National Park came from the newly established U.S. Forest Service in 1908, but that idea was not pursued, but it also was never lost. So over the next 20 years, some studies were completed about the land and its resources and its possible threats. In 1930, a proposal was brought to Franklin D. Roosevelt, but the president declined to act, saying that all non-defense measures should be deferred to prepare for looming World War II. Oh, wow. So just not good timing. Then Alaska achieved statehood in 1959. But this really had little impact on the people in the area near the present-day park because the population was so small, it just didn't receive much attention from either the state nor the federal government. And then passage of the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act in 1971 authorized the federal government to withdraw and study federal lands in Alaska for future uses. So that really put a spotlight on all this ambiguous land in Alaska. Can I guess what happens next? Sure. Someone comes and visits it, and then they're like, oh, we should protect this. (laughs) (laughs) Not explicitly. Okay. But that was a very good guess. Um, Oh, my gosh, Kat. That's actually so funny you say that because it's like kind of like the opposite. Because in every story that we've had so far, it was locals wanted the land to be protected and preserved. And then so they had to have a grassroots movement to get Congress to protect it. But actually... 
It was the opposite. Oh, that's so... It's so weird. So, actually, in 1977, a bill was introduced to Congress called the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act, mouthful, in which 14 million acre Wrangell St. Elias National Park and a 1.8 million acre Chisana National Park were proposed. Although supported by the Park Service, the bill was opposed by Alaska. Hearings in 1978 adjusted the area's boundaries and relative proportions of the park and preserved lands with a view to allowing the, uh, the hunting of doll sheep, which we might hear more about, uh, in the Wrangell Mountains. Uh, and then they also introduced uh, like national recreation area in the park as well. So they were trying to compromise on Alaska not really wanting this park. But Alaska Senator threatened to filibuster the proposed bill, which would kill it. And following this blockage with other efforts on the part of Alaska authorities to claim lands that fell within the proposed protections, President Jimmy Carter invoked the Antiquities Act. We'd like a button every time. Antiquities Act. <laughs> um, to proclaim 17 Alaskan national monuments. So Jimmy Carter got word that uh, Alaska senators were not having these lands for whatever reason become monuments or parks and he was like no 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 presidential authority 17 alaska national monuments including almost 11 million acres in wrangell st elias national monument in 1978 so it was officially a monument but as everyone knows and remembers from listening to our first two episodes the monument designation carried no dedicated funding for the park it was just simply a designation so there was no money for like park development or operations um, but it did incite considerable hostility from alaskans who regarded the designation they just seem very hostile yeah exactly they're just like whoa like there there are only six of you and like you're all pissed like like, chill Um, so they were like no but but chill like get Get a little bit cold. Get a little oh, bit cold. No, just um, the, they were just like, no, we feel like this is a federal land grab. We don't agree with this park, um, and we're like not about it. Um, so the few Park Service personnel assigned to the area received death threats, and a Park Service airplane was set on fire and destroyed. Wow, aggressive. Very aggressive. aggressive. Which is so weird because like in all, the, the whole purpose of us starting this podcast is we were like, this land is your land. <laughs> like all happy, like every, like like in the Grinch, everyone's around the Christmas tree like, fa, for like <laughs> unity and protecting land. And then these Alaskans are like setting planes on fire. <laughs> fire. <laughs> they're like, no, get out of here. They're just mad that they're not like barefoot jumping into a swimming pool. <laughs> That's it. They're just cold, they're just cold. bitter people uh, we'll say past tense they were just cold bitter people for any alaskans listening we don't think that anymore um but back then like whoa so um attitudes were sharply divided between white alaskans who were mostly opposed to the park and felt that they were being forced out of this area um and then there was also the side of the natives who were granted hunting rights and expected to profit from tourism mm, that makes sense it does yeah it makes sense but also like as we've also talked about, um, the natives have had it hard enough. So, like, mm-hmm. let them profit off tourism. Like, They've already protected this land. Yeah, <laughs> they, for real. They can keep protecting them. Anyway, obviously, we know what side won. The bill passed in 1980 and was signed into law by Jimmy Carter. So, today, it abuts against Canada's Kluane National Park 
Uh, and together, their 20 million acres represent one of the largest wilderness areas left in the world. Uh, they were recognized by the United Nations as a World Heritage Site in 1979. Yes. 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 Uh, and I have one noteworthy part of history that didn't really like, tie in directly okay. to um, like the timeline. But a, an historical feature is the now deserted Kennecott Mine mm-hmm. town. Uh, which today is a National Historic Landmark. After copper was discovered in the area in 1900, a group of wealthy investors formed the Kennecott Copper Corporation. That's such a mouthful. (laughs) Um, And actually, it was named uh, when a clerical worker misspelled Kennecott. So it's the the actual geographical location and the river today is Kennecott spelled K-E-N-N-I-C-O-T-T, but the Kennecott Copper Corporation is spelled K-E-N-N-E-C-O-T-T. I noticed that in my research, and I just thought it was one of those things that you could, like, that's really cool. Yeah, no, it's, like, not interchangeable spelling. Just a clerical worker misspelled it, but then they were like, oh, no going back. This is... <laughs> They're like, bureaucracy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're moving um, forward. We're not changing all this paperwork again. Got so back then, I... Uh, corporations like built and owned towns um and so they had the copper river and northwest railroad uh and it included like a famous million dollar bridge which was a big deal when it was built and they had established the company and town of kennecott uh since there was no gambling or drinking allowed in the company's town mccarthy which is a town not far away quickly sprang up Uh, nearby as a place where miners would find wine, women, and song in its saloons, restaurants, hotels, and pool halls. A number of the buildings from from that era still stand in both Kennecott and McCarthy, making the area the best remaining example of the early 20th century copper mining. Kennecott's a ghost town now, and McCarthy still has people living in it. Yes. Yeah, Yeah. McCarthy's still like, I think it's still like a very low population town, like I mean, a typical like Alaska town, but Kennecott is... A ghost town now, and it's um, operated by the National Park Service. And you can't bring a car, like that bridge that I. It looks yeah decrepit. Yeah, the <laughs> the bridge that I mentioned that was like such a big deal whenever it was built. You can't drive your car over it. I you didn't have to park re- your car and then walk into it. Oh yeah 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 yeah. It's like and it's a a good distance too that you I have think to walk. so. Yeah, um, it's pretty difficult to get to. So I didn't rewind the video I was watching, but I know that when they shut down the Kennecott Copper Mill, they gave everyone two days to move out. I don't know why. Oh. It was like something like weird, but yeah. Um, I have a, a fun fact I'll just put in here now. So okay. that area actually um, resourced a lot of materials important to the Allies for the victory of World War One. Oh. Yeah. So I'll, I'm going to read this. It's um, directly from a website. Okay. During World War One, much of the copper mined and processed in Kennecott was used for ammunition and artillery. Today, many of the lands and buildings in Kennecott are managed by the National Park Service. But anyway, that's, I don't know why it shut down, but. Um, oh, because all the copper was, was gone. Was gone. They extracted all of it. There's no more copper left. You know, I love copper. I did not know that. Like, I have so much copper all around the house. Oh, yeah. oh, like as an aesthetic. I mean, I, I yeah, but also, like, I just love it. I mean, I co- mean it's... Um, copper's cool. It's antibacterial, 
So, like, I have this place oh. I go to get my nails done, and they have the copper lining in the foot bath so that you know you're not <laughs> nice. getting someone else's bacteria and stuff like that. Great. I, it's, it's just a I great. I do not know. Yeah. Oh, and it turns a patina, so it becomes more beautiful as Ooh. it ages. Sorry. Just I'm, like you, Kat. Oh, shut up. That's all the Botox. <laughs> <laughs> oh, cool. Well, that's all that I had on the history, um, and I hope that it was a little more fun than maybe past episodes. I loved it. I think that this is a I'm fun park, it. honestly. This is a fun park. It's it's a pretty neat place. It's a little overwhelming, honestly. A lot overwhelming. It I mean, been... it's bigger than Switzerland. If I can, I'll never forget. It's six Yellowstones big. It's six yellow. Like yeah. you hear it so many times when you start researching it. It's massive. All right, shall we take a break? Let's take a short break. Let's take a short break. We're gonna take a break. We're gonna take a break. We'll be yeah. We'll be right back. We're gonna take a break. <laughs> We back. Back again. <laughs> sorry. I was going to let I'm you take so it away because I don't know the words. Yeah. And you no, do. No, I'm not, I'm not singing that again. Back, back um, again. <laughs> you know what's really funny is, you know how people have Elf on a Shelf? Yeah. So I never had one. I don't have one now, but I had this little elf above us. Oh, I did not it's see It's hanging him. on our chandelier. And his name is Eli. It is. It is on his shirt. And we have Elias National Park. We do. <laughs> Elias. Oh, wow. What's up, dude? Yeah. The Great. irony. It's not Ellie spelled E-L-I. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm just giving you a hard time. Oh, great. Nice. So we were just talking over the break over how I already mispronounced this. But I'm not going to say it many times. And if I mispronounce it again, Nick is going to correct me. Mm, maybe. Um, <laughs> elf on a chandelier. Yeah. Not a shelf. Did you paint the chandelier? A long time ago. Oh, golly. <laughs> well, it looks great. <laughs> Thanks. I love the color. Uh, okay. Wonderful. Well, All right, so let's talk about, um, honestly, we're going to talk about geology, ecology, animals, plants. I think that's it. Oh, some things not in the animal plant kingdoms. What? That's a thing? Yeah. Yeah, there's three. There's three kingdoms. So um, this is an extremely large national park, as we've already talked about. Um, just to reiterate, large. it is six Yellowstones big. So it is very big. Um, and regardless of where it would be, it would probably be a modge podge of geological features. Yeah. But specifically because of where it is located, it is a lot. There's a lot going on there. I'm not going to go into it. Because What's bigger than a hodgepodge? <laughs> What's bigger than a hodgepodge? Yeah. Maybe like a hodgepodge podge of a hodgepodge like you put two together a hodgy podgy hodgepodge yes exactly um this park man but just a little side note fact um more than 99 percent of alaska is not actually an original part of the land of the north american continent so whether that means like a tectonic plate has moved towards it or it's a volcano or like all sorts of things have happened but yeah most of Alaska is new territory. Not new meaning like, do you know, can you give us a ballpark of how many millions of years? I'm thinking from Pangaea. Oh, oh, oh. Cool. So, got yeah. It, got it. 
and I, I did think about that, and I didn't find a, a final answer, but that was a fact, and I'm sticking to it. So, <laughs> when you look at the description of Wrangell St. Elias... There you go. Yay! Much of the focus will be on glaciers. Mm-hmm. Uh, generally, glaciers are large, frozen bodies of fresh water that move very slowly, um, but there's so much more than that. So I, I was reading about it. I was like, what is a glacier? A glacier. <laughs> like, I accept it in life. We'll talk about a few things I've accepted in life that I had to <laughs> research a little bit more. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so glaciers are formed in areas where there's a tremendous amount of snowfall. And that makes sense because most of the bla- glaciers are leftovers from the Ice Age when they accounted for over half of the Earth. So when snowfall doesn't melt during the Ice Age or else other times, but instead builds upon itself, the pressure and time creates very thick ice. Um, the large size of glaciers, so glaciers have to be at least 164 feet, which is random number, yeah. 164 feet thick, and they can be from a football football field size to bigger. Um, they Because of the, this large size, they create a very slow movement. So I guess it's just like the pressure. If you just like pushed on a piece of ice, it just kind of slides. Okay. Yeah. So that's what happens. Cool. Um, And as the glaciers have slowly moved, they have changed the landscape of Mm -hmm. the area. They move over kind of like a sandpaper and they either carve or smooth or move the land around. Got it. Cool. This movement of water has also made other critical changes to the surrounding ecosystems. It's delivered and deposited fresh water to the ecosystems. So, in fact, glaciers are the largest source of fresh water on the planet. So that was important for everyone to know. Um, Agreed. Also, um, I wanted to put all this in perspective about the size of the glaciers in this particular park and elsewhere. So, Wrangell St. Elias glaciers account for a fourth of all the glaciers in North America two-thirds of the glaciers in Alaska and cover a third of the park. The glacial mass in the park is bigger than Rhode Island. Oh, dang. Yeah. so It's a lot of ice. It's a lot of ice. Um, and it's very pretty. And, very um, pretty. You can go play on them. So the movement of the glaciers also accounts for other ecological habitats in the park. As mentioned before, most glaciers are relics of the Ice Age. So when the Ice Age was coming to an end, the glaciers melted, and many of the plants and animals that had previously moved south because it was getting too cold moved back to where the glaciers once existed. And this area is called the Boreal Forest, or the Taiga. Taiga. So... Yes. Um, insert story here of when I was in middle school, and we all had different um, ecosystems that we had to write a paper on, and so I got the taiga. I didn't know it was also called the boreal forest. I don't think I ever figured that out the whole time, wow. but I kept going to the libraries because this was back in the day, and I'd be like, do you have any books on the taiga? And I never once didn't get someone to give me a book about tigers. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh that's good how um, did your project turn out did, did you find like did, did you turn in your assignment i think i found an encyclopedia eventually and i pretty much like <laughs> copied and pasted from the inside because i yeah there's not uh, i even today with the internet like there it wasn't 
it wasn't a great amount of information right. that I had going oh, on here. Gosh. Um, so, but ironically, the taiga is the world's <laughs> largest biome, encompassing parts of Canada, Alaska, and the north northern part of the t- contiguous United States. Nice. So it's very, very large, and it's um, a little bit different than what you're expecting. So I I wanted to describe it for you um, because I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you're thinking kind of like a, a cold desert when you think of, like, glaciers coming off and yeah. things going back. So the National Park Service website actually put it perfectly. So this comes from them. <clears throat> It's hard to find a single image that describes Alaska's boreal forest. It's a land of multiple, sometimes contrasting scenes. A stand of slender black spruce trees scattered across the landscape of lush moss and lichen. A moose wading shoulder deep in a pond. A grove of paper birch glowing yellow in the hillside. Mm-hmm. A moonlit willow thicket laced with the hair trails through the snow caribou fording a glacial river, black bear and red fox, cranberry and rose, black spruce and white spruce, lynx and loon. That, like, at the end, they just gave up on sentences, right. but I do so, that so alone. <laughs> Also this. That sounds beautiful. You know what I'm picturing when you were reading all that? Um, just the most, like, beautiful Bob Ross painting. Yeah. 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 Oh, that sounds so nice. Some of his most epic paintings do look a lot like a taiga. Mm -hmm. So, um, Alaska's taiga is often portrayed... I'm going to say taiga the whole time. (laughs) Please do. Is often portrayed as a blanket of spindly evergreens covered... Did you make up that word? Nope. What is spindly? I'm sure I'm pronouncing this wrong. S-P-I-N-D-L-Y. Spindly. Spindly. Skinny, lanky, thin, frail. Oh. Gangly. Spindly evergreens. There we go. You didn't make it up. <laughs> All right. You may no, proceed. I, I copied and pasted it. It's actually <laughs> underlined in blue on this page. Very rarely do I do this. It actually comes from the same website. I was like, website. how did you get the definition so quick? It was hyperlinked. It was hyperlinked. That's fine. It's still a part of the National Park Service website. <laughs> I just didn't want to tell you how much I had copied and pasted. Okay, no, but it's good. Um, so these evergreens covering the hills and valleys of the far north. In reality, it's a complex mosaic of forest types. From sunny aspen groves to spruce bogs intermingled with meadows, marshes, lakes, rivers, and supporting a diverse complement of animals. What shapes this ecosystem? Cold weather. Cold, cold weather. Long winters, permafrost, forest fires all yeah. contribute to the tapestry of Alaska's boreal forest. So that I needed to give a little bit of background on all that. That painted a really beautiful picture. Thanks. Yeah. And it is, um, I think it's a very unique place be- because it does get so cold and it's like such a desert and then everything kind of melts and then it's this happy, like even the plants and animals like change color to yeah. blend from like snow to spring and things like that. So I think it's really cool and gnarly. Um, probably just not what you expected from Alaska. So I started looking into the different animals that I wanted to cover and I really wanted to do this. I did, but I didn't do it. I just wanted to mention McCarthy, the town beside, what was it called? Kennecott. Kennecott actually has more dogs than people. Whoa, yeah, there's Ooh, like, let's go! <laughs> there's like doggies running oh. around everywhere. Oh. So I wanted to do something just on the doggies of McCarthy, Gosh. but I didn't. Okay, I'm going to Google that later. Mm-hmm. But it, as always, it was difficult. 
Um, so I went with uh, the theme of the holidays for my first animal. Okay. Um, so our first animal is the caribou or the reindeer. I'll say reindeer. Well, reindeer are actually in Europe and Asia. Or if they are domesticated in Alaska. So I was like, what does that mean? They actually use reindeer like like cows to like pull <sighs> stuff and yeah. Wait, or horses. Horses, okay. Well I mean cat ox, whatever. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, oh, cool. Yeah. So they're like farm animals. Yep. So they are reindeer in Europe and Asia and caribou. Caribou in North America. Unless yes. they're domesticated right. in Alaska, then they're reindeer again. Yeah. Tight. Got it. <laughs> so the caribou there outnumber the entirety of the human population, which is, nice. I, that means they have, what, seven right. caribou? Yeah, um, big deal, caribou. Like I just mentioned, I think they're like a combination of cow and deer. So they're lanky. Yeah. They're big, up to 700 pounds. That's big. They only eat plants, or as one website put it, cud, which <laughs> made me think of cows. Gross. And But both sexes have antlers. So out of all the deer family, they are the only species that both sexes have antlers. Oh. And males use them to fight during the mating season, but females use them to protect their babies. So. So, but, so also fighting. Yes, but fighting other animals. Right, okay. Caribou make up one of the world's great large animal migrations. Woof. As summer approaches, they head north along a well-trod animal route, and they go 600 miles. Yeah. Per hour? <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. How do you think Santa gets around so quickly? Um, <laughs> 600 miles. Mm-hmm. That is far. Yeah, just to just to find some more cud, and then they go back and have their babies, and then go find some more cud. The life of a caribou. Yes, um, they have large concave hooves. So this is important and interesting. They it helps them in the snow, so it, like helps them like actually walk around in the snow. Okay. It also helps them paddle when they swim, oh. but it also is a tool to scoop up lichen. So they, like, scoop it up and... <laughs> scoop it up. So they got spoons on their feet. Yep. So the reason why they're... Besides the fact that um, there are lots of them and things like that, Wrangell St. Elias Natural Park... Elias. Elias. Gotcha. Oh, how in I the got world? You. I have to just put, like, a little dash in there. It's fine. Um, for you. They host three of 32 recognized caribou herds, but one of these herds is unique because it's the only one that crosses the border between Alaska and Canada. Oh, so which is interesting because they, like, there's so much mm-hmm. right on the border. Exactly, so it's interesting that they don't cross the border very often. So they've done a lot to protect these herds, um, and they they were going away. We think it was because of over um, hunting, mm. and so they've stopped that. They protected them. They tried to protect them from wolves and bears as well, and and you know calves are pretty. Uh, Helpless. Yeah. So they did some, but it looks like their populations are growing back. So. Good. Um, I was Googling reindeer mm-hmm. while, and caribou while you were um, saying all that, mm-hmm. and their antlers are massive. Mm-hmm. Well, the males are. The male antlers are massive, and I just Googled how large male caribou antler 
Mm -hmm. antlers are and they're 51 inches long wow what six five feet is 61 yeah like an antler is 51 inches long that's over four feet Jeez, just towering on the top of their head that is massive and then yeah they actually like they shed the whole outside of it every it's weird it's so weird so like unlike um a moose which their antlers look like like a waffle fry, like a Chick-fil-A waffle <laughs> yeah. fry. Reindeer antlers are just are like very long, and they have like a few spikes coming off of them. But they're mostly just like long, skinny, fifty-one inches. That's big. Yep. Wow. Yeah, I don't think moose are a part of the deer family, but I don't really know. I don't know why I'm saying that. I have no idea. Me neither. Anyway, you ready for the next animal? I'm ready. So. <laughs> Glacier ice worms. Glacier ice worms. Okay, I like the first two things, but worms not so sure about. Well, ice worms. Google them too. Yes, um, they're not to be confused with other ice worms. Oh yeah, that live in the get ocean it right. Floor. Um, they literally live in glaciers. Oh wow! So one of my friends went to Alaska and brought me home like a pin from the ice worm festival. And I thought it was adorable, and the mascot is by far the cutest worm I've ever seen. But I didn't question the existence of the ice worm, and apparently I should have. So people have made up facts that um, have made it so that people are like, no, the ice worm doesn't exist, but they do. So What a scandal. Two facts that don't. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Two facts that are not true is that they... Grow up to 50 feet long. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and the other one is that they are why glaciers are blue. Um, okay. So glaciers are blue because it's compact one. pressure of ice and water. Okay. But anyway. So, right. So ice worms are actually about a fourth of an inch long. <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> They can appear to be a range of black to reddish when you look at them. And when you see them in a glacier, they just look like a little piece of thread. Mm. Um, They're related to earthworms and leeches, like your basic earthworm. Yeah. These worms have not just learned how to survive in freezing temperatures. They thrive Thrive. in them. They actually actually, um, have perfected existing in 32 degrees Fahrenheit or exactly freezing. Their bodies have created adaptations so that the tissues and organs do not freeze. Even in the summer, um, when glaciers become a little bit like mushy slushy, Mm. they're still 32 degrees. So because of the chemical properties of water, they have found the perfect habitat. Now, this is sad and kind of gross, but at 40 degrees, the worms will actually melt and die. Whoa. (laughs) So... um, I don't know this for a fact, but it's probably because of this melting and dying thing that they are also adverse to the sun. And in fact, their Latin name means sun avoider. So instead, they oh. do all of their chores at night. They fix dinner of algae and ice, and then they go back into the ice for the rest uh, for rest during the day. And this probably also helps them avoid predators mm. like birds. So it's hard to walk in the evening onto a snowpack of a glacier without squishing an ice worm. On one glacier, the record mean density, so the average density, was 2,600 ice worms per square meter. And 
this particular great glacier was 2.7 square kilometers. So that means that there were over 7 billion ice worms Whoa. in one glacier. And this is more than the Earth's entire human population, in case you just needed to reference oh that. Oh, my gosh. So it's a good thing they don't need many resources because there's a lot of them. Yeah. A lot. A lot. And they also, as I kind of mentioned at the beginning, they have a celebration of them in Alaska each year. The ice worm. Festival. So, any questions about the ice worm? No. What an interesting little critter. (laughs) I guess, I don't know. I could not do it. Yeah, I'm glad you did it. I had to do it. What's Um, next? The quaking aspen. So, we're going to plants now. Cool. Transferring over. Transfer. Given it's... It was given its name because of the way the leaves move make it look like the tree is actually shaking or quaking. <laughs> well, you can tell it's an aspen by the way it is. I didn't write shaking. I put sharking. <laughs> <laughs> it's sharking. <laughs> sharking or quaking. These glossy round leaves change from green to red and its bark is smooth and light with thin black lines. The tree has... Probably the most superlatives of any plant I have covered so far. Whoa. So it has the widest natural range of any tree in North America. It's the most prominent of the hard word. <laughs> the hard, hard words. Word. <laughs> All those hard words. What and are you hard trying to say? <laughs> hard woods. Hard woods. Okay. And I said that wrong because I have hard in word. Wrangell's St. Elias. Nice. Yes, National Park. Okay, back to facts. Um, as far as the oldest of all of the quaking aspen, there's one in Minnesota estimated to be 8,000 years old. Dang. But they usually live 15 to 100 years. Wow. Um, it's also the largest living organism growing in clones. So the quaking aspen reproduces or it propagates by its root system, much like the pawpaw, but a little bit different than the pawpaw. Okay. Therefore, all of the trees in one grove share the same root system, and they are literally one giant organism. the same. They can also distribute seed if they need to, but this method is less effective in the dense boreal forest, so because they're, they're fighting with the spruce trees, for light and space and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, This usually only happens after a fire. And um, still, this tree probably will win. But um, in later years, they actually may be choked out completely by the spruce because of that. We'll see. We'll see. So my last one I thought was like the least exciting thing, but I I think it is actually the most exciting thing. Oh, Um, those are the opposite. Maybe it's not. Anyway, so I asked Nick to pull it up on his computer. Got it. And I just want a little description of what you're looking at and maybe not just like one specific one, but like in general, what do they all look like? I have a few pulled up. Um, So they look like, most of them are green. One looks like... um, a loofah, mm-hmm. a shower loofah. Um, some, a lot of them look like mini versions of a coral, mm-hmm. um, but they're like they appear to be smaller and they're growing on like a tree or on the ground. Um, some look like little mushrooms, but just the stem. Yep, not the head. I feel yep. like I could have come up with like a better way. No, I think that's a really good way to, to put it. say that. 
Um, so they're like, like they're like taller and skinnier. Um, and that's what I'm seeing the most of. Yeah, spongy type. I guess I could have said straws <laughs> instead of. I was thinking flutes, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They they're kind of and uh, like I said, most of them are green, white, greeny. Maybe they kind of resemble like the color of cabbage a little bit, but. That's what I see. There's a lot of them. So these are lichen. Lichen. Um, And there's 131 species of lichen in this park alone. And so they look different because they are actually composed of very different things. So I'm going to attempt. I spent a lot of time on this to explain this, but I'm also going to ask you to ask any questions that you have because it's hard to wrap your head around. Can do. So lichen are a symbiotic relationship between fungus and algae. A symbiotic relationship is one where one of the two parties benefit. So it's kind of like that friend who always invites you to lunch, but then you have to pay the bill. Mm. The fungus (laughs) is the freeloader in the relationship. Fungus, which includes yeast, rust, smut, mildew, molds, and mushrooms. All the things that, you know, are free loaders. Yeah. Except mushrooms. They're actually not plants. So they don't gain energy from the sun and they need to have somewhere else to obtain their nutrients. So they have to live near other organisms and suck the nutrients out. So the other side of this relationship is algae, which are in a kingdom all of their own, and they do produce their own energy either from the sun or in other ways. So in this way, the fungus basically farms the lichen for nutrients so that it can grow. So a lichen is a combination of two different organisms? So it's not even that. Um, It's a complex life form was the most like solidified word that I could find to describe what it is. And so I guess it's just when they come together, this happens. Okay. And that's why I needed you to ask questions because it doesn't have like a, a system. It doesn't have... I don't know. And that's why I'm slight it actually says this is where I get slightly confused on my page right here. Okay, no, I'm reading again what you said. A complex life form that is a symbiotic partnership of two separate organisms, fungus and algae. The dominant partner is the fungus, which gives the lichen the majority of its characteristics, from its thallus shape to its fruiting bodies. Many lichens will have both types of of algae. So it, it never still really, unclear yeah, it's that. still very cl- unclear what wow. the actual lichen is, but they lichen, don't have any roots, stems, leaves. They don't have chlor- chloroplast. What are you? Okay. Moving forward, <laughs> they do provide a mode of survival in harsh environments where algae cannot normally survive. So since the fungus can protect the algae because algae can't be somewhere where it's too cold or it's mm-hmm. too dry or right. whatever. Um, you thick a little thing. This allows them to live in the dry, sunny climates without dying, as long as there's an occasional rain shower or flooding to let them recharge. So, because the lichen enables algae to live all over the world in many different climates, they also are a means to convert carbon dioxide in the atmosphere through photosynthesis into oxygen, which we all need to survive. So <laughs> correct. <laughs> yes. Thanks <laughs> for adding that little bit in there. <laughs> so at the beginning of this, I said that this was a symbiotic relationship where the fungus was the freeloader. Right. But it seems like the algae gets a lot of like benefit out of this as well. You know, that's what I was thinking too. So it's more of a mutualistic <laughs> relationship, and I feel like that we should go to the entire science 
world yeah. and let them know. Justice for the lichen. <laughs> and the... And the, and the algae. And the fungus. And the fungus. Yeah, justice. For all three. <laughs> wow. Okay, well, if you have any more questions on what a lichen is, go Google it and find out for yourself. Because well, that's about all we can. No, I have a lot more oh, information okay. about the lichen. <laughs> Do you really? <laughs> Not a lot, but okay. they're more important than just reindeer food. Oh. So one of the ways the, the lichen directly benefits humans is through their ability to absorb everything in the atmosphere, especially pollutants. So lichens can provide us with valuable information about the environment around us. Any heavy metal or carbon or sulfur or other pollutants in the atmosphere are absorbed and scientists can extract these toxins. So they are actually what is known as bioindicators. And so we use lichens and we test them to see what's going on in that area to know like... if That's actually so cool. Right. And one of the most important ones that's not... I mean, it is pollution-related, but it's more of a natural thing that happens, is nitrogen. Mm. So nitrogen usually comes from, like, the breakdown of plants and things like that, but it, too much of it can be bad for an environment. So excess nitrogen in the atmosphere can produce pollutants such as ammonia and ozone. And um, when you have too much nitrogen, algae and the chlorophyll will actually die. So certain lichen are more tolerant to excess nitrogen because their algae is more tolerant than others. So we can actually just see if there's an excess amount of nitrogen by which lichen are dying and which lichen are surviving wow and recognizing this and the shift in their species composition can also show to scientists the potential beginning of an ecosystem decline due to nitrogen really important sounds like it (laughs) um but there are also many people who use lichen for food on a regular basis are there lichens are even a delicacy in japan or used as a dessert in scandinavia Okay. So. I'll take that website's word for it. Yep. All of that. Wow. Lichens. Who knew? I always want to say leaking like a lichen. Leaking like a lichen. <laughs> I L-I-C-H-E-N. L-I-C-H-E-N. Nice. I knew how to pronounce that one. Very nice. Yeah. I have some fun facts. What about you? I got some fun facts. We should um, be speedy, though, because we are we're at an hour. You first or me first? You first. Me first. Climate. The park is dominated by long, cold winters in which temperatures remain below freezing for five months. Nighttime winter temperatures can sink below negative 50 degrees Fahrenheit, and daytime highs are usually around 5 degrees Fahrenheit. The record high in the park is 89 degrees. Going off into the wilderness at many national parks means following the backcountry trails to the same vistas that many hit. This isn't the case at this national park. With no maintained backcountry trails, you are truly venturing off to find unexplored wonders. Wrangell St. Elias National Park has the largest coastal glacier in North America. Hubbard Glacier is 76 miles long, 7 miles wide, and 600 feet tall. While most glaciers on Earth are shrinking, Hubbard Glacier is actually growing. Global warming has caused more snowfall in the area, which compact and become part of the glacier itself. This is also the largest wilderness area in the National Wilderness Preservation System. That's all I have for that one. Okay. (laughs) Um, The Wrangell Mountain Range has nine of the 16 tallest peaks in America. Four of them are above 16,000 feet. 
The Nabisna Glacier at approximately 53 miles is the longest valley, valley glacier in North America and the world's longest interior valley glacier. Because the park is so large, there are only just over 100 miles of road in the park. It's very popular to explore the park by airplane, snowmobile, or boat along the coast. Although photos of the park taken by hikers in summer are breathtaking. <laughs> I would totally do it by plane. Uh, for sure. Yeah, that Like after looking at all this. Oh, it's Gorgeous. Um, you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I want to reiterate, along with thousands of other species, the home is part to the largest population of doll sheep in North America. Doll sheep, commonly mistaken as bighorn sheep, inhabit mountainous regions, with the latest count coming to over 13,000. That's a lot of sheep. And this is my last one. There are 14 backcountry cabins that are available for public use. Many of these cabins were built by hunters, trappers, or miners 100 years ago but have come under the National Park Service administration. All but one of these cabins are free of charge and only four require a reservation. The others are first come first serve, but many require a plane or helicopter to get there. And my last one will be, in addition to sheep, other mammals in the park, including black bears and grizzly bears, ranging in size from 500 to 1,500 pounds. Standing Alaskan grizzly bears in Wrangell St. Elias can range up to 10 feet tall. Don't mess with the bears. Don't mess with the bears. Don't, don't touch it. Don't touch the baby. Don't touch nothing about it. Uh, just Google it. Check out one of the webcams. They have lots of webcams. Perfect. Here, yes. Okay, Kat, do you have any questions, thoughts, questions, thoughts, comments? Oh, my gosh. Hello? Shop local. <laughs> That's all I have. <laughs> Ambiguities. <laughs> Ambiguities? Critiques? I can't speak today. Shop local. She said it once. She'll say it again. Did I say it twice? Yeah. Oh. It's worth repeating. Okay. Shop, Shop local. local. Oh, actually, you know what? You said it on last week's episode. Did I really? But we recorded it like four weeks ago, so you just didn't remember. Okay. Well, but this is the time to say it. Yeah. Great. Shop Local. Make your grandma's recipes if you have a grandma. Ooh. Or find someone else's Ooh, Find someone recipes. else's grandma. <laughs> Make their recipes. Great. Well, thank you so much for listening to our episode on Wrangell St. Elias National Park and Preserve. You can find this and many more episodes anywhere you hear podcasts at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and much more. Follow us on Instagram at MFYA and Podcasts and email us at podcasts at gmail.com. Oh, we love you. Thanks for your support. That's all I got. You're beautiful. Bye.